So friends, uh, Acts is full, and we're going to be in Acts. That just was your tip off. Uh, Acts is full of stories of the ever-expanding kingdom of God. It is a picture of God's expanding family, of his uh, growing kingdom. God is actively at work in Acts, filling those empty seats around his banquet table, and he's doing it through mission, okay? Our Acts 16 passage today is no exception. It's a window into resurrection kingdom life. There's all these signs of the new, new ministry springing up, new movements of the Holy Spirit. And if we read Acts honestly, and certainly if we do this for the first time, it's full of surprises. How and where God leads can leave us a bit on the edge of our seats. It's very unconventional the way God seems to lead in Acts, isn't it? At least from a human perspective. But as we track these various missionary journeys, it can leave us on the edge of our seats a little bit. Where will they go next, right? It's not always what we expect, and it's certainly not always where we expect. I suspect Paul would agree with me on this point. Now, the leading of the Holy Spirit is a prominent and resounding theme in Acts, the leading of the Holy Spirit. How else does the kingdom of God truly expand, honestly? Read from you John 3, 8, a verse you probably know well. The Spirit blows where it will. You hear it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. There's a certain mystery to the leading of the Holy Spirit, isn't there? We rarely know why God leads us where he does. But the Holy Spirit's leading is seen clearly in Acts, and it's definitive. And as I said, it's clear, as we shall soon see. So if you have your Bibles and you want to flip to Acts 16, 9 through 15 is where we're going to be. Now, when we meet up with Paul and company, they're in Troas. Don't worry, there's, there will be no biblical geography quiz uh, during this section because there's a lot of ten-cent words in there that aren't the easiest to pronounce. Uh, they're in Troas, which is near Troy. And let me give you the backstory from Acts 16, 6 to 8 because this sets the context. It, it lets us know where we are. Uh, Paul and his companions travel through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Interesting. When they came to the border of Messiah, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Messiah, and they went down to Troas. Okay, that's how they end up in Troas. So they had intended to preach in the province of Asia, which is probably roughly modern-day Turkey, but they were kept from doing so by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's interesting, okay? And later, they try to enter Bithynia. Again, I, I, didn't, I said there'd be no quiz on the pronunciation of these words or biblical geography. <laughs> the spirit of Jesus in Bithynia would not allow them to enter Bithynia. Okay? So they went down to Troas. Again, interesting. They could have traveled in several directions, but God prevented them, literally restrained them from going to certain places. So let me get this straight. This goes against some of our probably our spiritual logic, prevented from preaching the gospel into unreached regions. Yep. Kept from making the gospel known in unchurched places. Yep. Hmm. Okay. We're not told why other than the fact that God is leading Paul and company elsewhere. Okay. So there's already, I think, a lesson in here for us. We don't always see how God is orchestrating the chess pieces of which we are only one. So we need to be faithful to our specific call from the Holy Spirit and trust that he's got these other areas covered. Let me give you an example for us. We are not an urban church in the sense of we're not trying to actively reach uptown Charlotte. Okay? In our searching about for a worship space, we haven't been looking in uptown Charlotte for worship space. Now, does that, it doesn't mean that uptown isn't important to the Lord. 
but rather that he's marshalling others, we believe, to reach that area. We've been called elsewhere. We believe to south, south central Charlotte, that area. In other words, we're not called to minister everywhere to everyone all the time. In mission, and I'm speaking corporately here, in mission, God provides us with the focus via the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's where focus comes from. He gives direction. He gives passion for certain areas and people, and we're faithful to those areas and people as he reveals them to us. So it's not a bad word as we seek out new worship space. eh? I don't think so. Now, back to the text itself and, and what's preceding our passage. From a human perspective, Paul's missionary efforts to date might have looked like he didn't know what he was doing, might have looked like these were just some false starts, might have looked like he was lost, might have looked even a bit haphazard. But as we see, that wasn't the case. It's a case of open doors and shut doors, open and shut doors, and the Holy Spirit directing them in the midst of that. Now, that doesn't prevent Paul and company from actively going door to door and knocking to see if a door might open to them. We knock, right? We knock. We look for open doors. And finally, the Holy Spirit does open a door in verses 9 to 15, and that's where we're going to pick it up. Uh, Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man, and he's uh, begging Paul to come, is basically. And that's not too strong of a word. It really is. He's begging. He's imploring. There is passion here. There's urgency here. This is beyond a polite invite. This isn't, Paul, oh boy, would you mind coming and paying us a visit? This is not what that is, okay? This is saying, please come. Please, please come and help us. There's begging and imploration here, okay? And Paul and his companions, underscore, immediately interpret the dream as a divine call to take the gospel to Macedonia. Notice the us and we language in verse 10, okay? First time we see us and we in the book of Acts is here, okay? The dream or the vision was Paul's, but there evidently is some sort of communal discernment, some sort of communal confirmation that this is indeed what the Lord wants to do. God speaks to his people through his people, amen? Amen, God speaks to his people through his people. They're of one accord of the Holy Spirit. And so they move forward, given this, and they journey from Troas to Philippi, which, by the way, is about 100 miles. So no small potatoes. It's a pretty significant journey. And something to bear in mind when we encounter the spread of the gospel and all these missionary journeys, I mean, obviously people were not as mobile as they are today. It's not just about technology, though. Uh, The culture then was such that you could live your entire lifetime and literally never travel more than about 10 or 20 miles from your hometown. Very common. That was just the culture. So these missionary journeys are adventures into the unknown, into the strange, and into the unfamiliar. There's nothing normal about these missionary journeys, even though they might appear normal to us as we read through them in the book of Acts. So they make their way to Philippi, a prominent city in Macedonia, the text tells us. It's also a Roman port. We'll talk more about that in a second. It's also a pagan city, okay, with a panoply of Roman gods. So that gives you a little taste for it. Let me, let me uh, explain or at least paint the picture a little more of what this is like. A Roman colony means it's a settlement for retired veteran Roman soldiers. So this is a pretty good gig for them. They're free to govern themselves, okay? They're free from taxes. So not a bad place to essentially retire. That's what a Roman colony is. It's a commercial center. It's a port city, which means lots of trade, lots of commerce. Uh, Philippi was very strong in agriculture. It was really strong in gold and silver mining. Uh, And just to give you an idea how prominent it was, here's what one author says. Now, get a load of this. Here's how prominent Philippi is. 
Bearing witness in Philippi was the closest thing to preaching in Rome without actually being there. That's a pretty big deal, given Rome is, is the centerpiece of the ancient world, or one of them. So, what do you think? <laughs> Philippi, is it a key location? What do you think? What would be your guess? Yes. A strategic location? Yes, absolutely. So making landfall in Philippi is crucial and key, as the Lord already knows. So Paul's MO, when he gets to a new territory, is basically this. He goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Okay? His missional strategy was that, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. So his usual missionary practice was to preach to the Jews and proselytes who were gathered there. So listen to the where and the when of Paul's missiology here. Here's what he does. So he seeks out the synagogue, the Jewish meeting place in a foreign land, on the Sabbath. Synagogue on the Sabbath. He didn't start his missionary work until the Sabbath. We don't know why. This might just have been good pragmatics, just a smart move. He would preach and bear witness on the day when most were gathered for worship. So this is the biggest audience, okay? So that's his M.O., so my question then is, why do we find Paul looking outside the city gate beside a river? It's in verse 13. Why do we find Paul looking outside the city gate beside a river? Well, let me explain. Uh, because it was a Jewish custom to build a synagogue outside of these idolatrous pagan cities, preferably near a water source, probably for like ritual purification. And it was probably outside the town because the authorities wouldn't allow the Jews to meet in the city limits. So there's some practical reasons. There's some spiritual reasons for being on the outskirts of Philippi. Paul knows these things, thus his choice to go and look there first. And he says, we expected to find a place of prayer. So they look outside the city gate beside a river, and they expected to find a place of prayer. And what he means by that is, I, we expected to find a synagogue. We expected to find a, a, some official house of worship here. What Paul finds, however is a group of women gathered in worship, probably out in the open air. Now, this tells us something. Evidently, the Jewish community in Philippi was so small that it didn't have the requisite 10 men to form a synagogue. If you want to make a synagogue, you had to have 10 men, okay? That was the Jewish custom. Without these mandatory 10 men, a proper, quote-unquote, congregation couldn't be established. Didn't meet the bare minimum to be considered, in our terms, a church plant, Okay? But God had plans nonetheless, which I love. Like Cornelius and his household earlier in Acts, this group of women are God-fearers, and they're outliers in their community. Lydia, the leader, is a Gentile worshiping under the Old Covenant. She's what's called a proselyte, a convert to the Jewish faith. And she's a leader. She's a wealthy businesswoman, says so she's a dealer in purple cloth. Uh, we learn later that she also owns a house, which means that she's someone of means, and probably attests to her success as a businesswoman, too. So as Paul and his team sit down with them, they use the opportunity to speak about the Lord Jesus, about the Messiah. Now, let me, let me uh, make this point really queer, clear. Excuse me. He could have overlooked this opportunity. He could have overlooked this opportunity. This isn't a legitimate worship space. There's no synagogue here. Where are the requisite 10 men? This is just a bunch of women. I'm not going to preach here. Paul could have overlooked this as just small potatoes, too insignificant. But he doesn't. <laughs> and thanks be to God, he shares the gospel with Lydia and company. And the text says that the Lord opened her heart to respond, or opened her heart to hear what uh, Paul had to say about Jesus Christ. 
The heart is a rich term in the scriptures. It has a number of meanings. Um, It can mean uh, your inner life, the center of your personality. It can mean it's the seat of your spiritual and intellectual life. I like to think of it this way. It's what makes you, you, uniquely. So take your heart away and you cease to resemble you anymore. Okay, your heart speaks of our defining core identity at the most foundational level. And the human heart is the door God opens to his gospel. Okay, those deep subterranean layers within us. God is the one who opens their hearts to receive this word. And Lydia does. And get this, Lydia and her entire household are baptized. Probably right there in the river would be my guess. Uh, Same immediacy we see in other stories like in Acts, like the Ethiopian eunuch, remember that? Or like Cornelius and his household, remember that? Now this is a little foreign to us, this idea of baptizing a whole household, because Lydia is the only one who's mentioned here is coming to a point of belief. But if the head of a household was baptized, all those under their authority, under their care, were baptized too. This is a different culture and a different era than what we live in. Hard for us to understand because we're, we're highly individualized. The household and all the people in it, that was the basic social unit in the ancient Near East. And they're typically large. They, included, they would have included Lydia, would have included her family, her extended family, any servants she had, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So everything was done communally and everything was done with a concern for the whole. So sleeping in one big room, yep. Eating together, yep. Running the household together, yep. Just a very different culture than what we live in currently. The conversion of the head of the household had necessary spiritual implications for the other members. It's a communal thing. Thus, the entire household is baptized, and Paul evidently has no issues with that. Again, same situation with Cornelius and his household when they're all baptized earlier in Acts. Lydia, in response, extends Paul and the others her hospitality. It's a beautiful, I don't say a quid pro quo, that's not quite fair, but it's beautiful. She offers them hospitality. Look, if I'm your sister in the Lord, let me welcome you into my home. And hospitality in this case means sharing material goods with those who teach the word. Paul will allude to this in his other uh, epistles. And Lydia's invitation is somewhat insistent. I don't know why, but it says, if you notice, the text says either, and she persuaded us, or and she prevailed upon us, right? So I don't know, there was some insistence there and some need to overcome some some hesitation. And I don't know why Paul and company are hesitant. Maybe strong taboos about Jews accepting hospitality, excuse me, from Gentiles. I don't know. Maybe this is the house of a single woman. Maybe that's the issue. I don't know. Uh, you know, but, but Lydia presses in. If I'm your sister, a fellow believer, let me extend you hospitality. So the point here, Paul and company needed some convincing. <laughs> Paul has the chance to practice what he would later preach in Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And thus begins the mission of the church in Philippi, the Philippians, to whom Paul will write later. Based off what we find off later, the church may have even continued to meet in Lydia's house. How about that? Now, from a worldly perspective, again, put your world hat on, not your spiritual eyes, regarding this mission and this story. Small, humble beginnings, not much to to make note of, probably. There's some apparent false starts, some wandering around, and, oh, Paul found this group of women, he told them about Jesus. You know, on one level, it's a so what, big whoop. But this is the start of the church in Philippi. 
okay? This is the beginning, and it begins with Lydia and her household. That's where it starts. If you come uh, to visit me at the church office, you, you might have noticed this sign that I have hanging on my door, uh, and here's what it says. The sign of God is that we may be led where we did not plan to go. Okay? The sign of God is that we may be led where we did not plan to go. Paul journeyed where he didn't expect to go. He planned on going north. Actually, God redirected them south, if you follow the geography. And Paul didn't encounter who or what he expected to find. He didn't find a proper synagogue. He just found a group of women worshiping out in the open air. The Holy Spirit is always orchestrating. Always orchestrating. Bringing the message of the gospel to the people who are ready to hear, believe, and follow in his time. Now, I think this passage can teach us a lot about being led by the Holy Spirit. And that's where I really want to focus. What does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit on mission? What does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit on mission? I'm going to give you three things. Matthew inspired me last week with three points. So I'm going to give you three points. How about that? It can be done. I can do it. <laughs> uh, what does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit on mission? One, it means discerning and listening. Discerning and listening. We can't simply lumber forward on mission, okay? We need to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit. Here's what's interesting. Just because something logically makes sense doesn't mean it's what God wants and where he's leading, okay? Just because it logically makes sense. There, there are limits to what can happen in this noodle of mine. There's limits to human rationality, okay? Sometimes what makes sense to us is not where God is leading, period. Now, the inverse is true, is true too, I would say. Just because something's sort of beyond human reason and spontaneous and freewheeling and surprising, that doesn't make it spirit-led, does it? No, we need the clear, open, and shut doors of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, so discerning and listening. Discerning and listening. There's a difference between allowing the Holy Spirit to lead exactly where he wants us to go and go where we think we should go, presuming God's leading and blessing it, and then to have God maybe have to do some cleanup afterwards. You ever done that in your life? Am I the only one, truly, <laughs> where God had to do some cleanup because I jumped ahead of him? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know about you, uh, but certainly the older I get, I'd rather get it right the first time. I'd rather get it right the first time and move in step with the Holy Spirit. Let me give an example of discerning and listening. What did they do with Paul's dream? Okay, They could have dismissed it. They could have said, it's just a dream, Paul. Just a vision. Maybe it isn't even a vision. They chose instead to consider it, to test it, to discern it, and to ask God if this was a direction to pursue as a community. That's listening and discerning. So what does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit on mission? Discerning and listening. That's, that's number one. Two, being led by the Holy Spirit in mission, and this is hard for us, means saying yes to some things and no to others. It means saying yes to some things and no to others. For Paul, saying yes to Philippi meant saying no to those other areas. Thankfully, God made it clear and restrained them from going to the other areas, meaning we can look around us and see no shortage of needs. Let's just take Charlotte, just in Charlotte, okay? There's no shortage of needs in Charlotte. But hear me clearly, the need isn't always the call. The need isn't always the call. When we focus on meeting needs and we stop listening to the Holy Spirit, you know what we end up with? 
a social gospel. And we, that's not, that will not save the world, friends. That will not save the world. We can't meet every need. We're not called to meet every need. You simply can't be all things to all people. We can't do it all. Now, let me give you some context. There are other believers in churches that work beside us, right? Are we the only church at work in Charlotte? No, we're not. We're not the only church at work in Charlotte, right? There are others who are led by the Holy Spirit too, right? Right. So God is orchestrating them too, unbeknownst to us. We need to have faith in that. We need to have faith in that. So two, being led by the Holy Spirit in mission means saying yes to some things, and it means saying no to other things in God's time. Uh, let me bring us back again to John 3.8, and this will build towards our third point in just a moment. The Spirit blows where it will. You hear it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. This is the idea of the, the Spirit as the wind, right? The ruach. Spirit as the wind. You hear it, but you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. Okay? There's a mystery to the leading of the Holy Spirit here, which uh, we often don't know why God leads where he does. But that leading is clear and definitive, as we see here in Acts. Now, hold that image of the Spirit as the wind, and let me throw another image at you to... Uh, this will make sense in a second. <laughs> One of the ancient images of the church is as a ship, an ark to be specific if you take the baptismal liturgy seriously, a means of salvation. In fact, the ceilings in old cathedrals were intended to resemble the hull of a ship. They're supposed to look like a ship that's just been flipped over. So when you looked up, you remembered, oh, the church as the ark is a, a means of salvation. So given John 3.8, the spirit as the wind I have to think the church is most like a sailboat. The church is most like a sailboat. We're not, uh, it's designed, here, this is a boat that's designed to catch the wind and designed to be carried along by the wind. So we're not a paddle boat, thank the Lord, because those are really slow. We're not self-propelled, although we can try to be. We're looking for the wind and waiting for that next gust to carry us along. We're to be ready for the wind and to be carried along by it. Okay? directed by it, guided by it, so that we're ready for mission. So we're to be listening and discerning. We're to say yes to some things, no to others. And three, we're to be ready. We're to be ready. So three is a question of readiness. Bless you. That's all right. That was a doozy. <laughs> three is we're to be ready. So let me press the analogy a little further. We ask questions like, well, Okay, so if we're to be ready, are we, is the vessel, are we seaworthy? Are the sails ready? Um, are all hands on deck? Or are we hunkered down, unprepared, distracted, busy with other things, kind of just doing church? Okay, are we ready? Paul and, his, Paul and company, man, they were focused and they were mobilized and ready to move when the wind picked up. Okay? So three, are we ready? It's a question of question of readiness. We'll conclude here. Um, in some ways, I think there's a great freedom in following the Spirit's lead. You know why? Because it takes us out of the driver's seat. <laughs> Our human agendas, guess where they go? In the back seat. <laughs> Our human agendas go back there. Rather than being driven by the tyranny of the urgent, i.e. like tending to the squeakiest wheel that we can find out in the world, we're free to ask. Where's the Holy Spirit leading us on mission? What's our Philippi? What's our Philippi? What's the new life he wants to bring in about, in and through us? What is that? 
Who does God want us to reach in the name of Jesus? Who are we being called to serve? Now, I got to tell you, these are really live questions for me personally as we pursue new worship space and a place where we'll set down roots. And they're not a bad set of questions to consider since Pentecost is two weeks away. That's a plug. Um, let me go through those again and jot down. If one of these pricks your heart, jot it down. Write it down and ruminate pray on it this week. Where is the Holy Spirit leading us on mission? Where is the Holy Spirit leading us on mission? What's our Philippi? What's our Philippi? What's the new life he wants to bring about in and through us? Who, obviously so relational, who does God want us to reach out to in Jesus' name? Who? And who are we being called to serve? They're all getting at the same thing, as you can tell. Let's inhabit these sorts of questions together as a community. Let's anticipate. Let's presume that the Spirit is going to shut doors in order to open one at just the right time. Just the right time. Let us be led by the Holy Spirit on mission for the glory of his kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.